Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we talk about how our institutions are failing and how we might fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Lee, it's good to see you. We had a summer off for a while there. We took a couple of weeks off from the podcast. It's good to be back. Turns out our institutions are still failing us. We haven't succeeded yet. We haven't we haven't fixed the problem, which is good because I guess our kids need to go to uh, to college, right? So, you know, at some point. My father is a psychiatrist and I remember he's passed away many, many years ago, but I remember one time when I was in high school and he was going to work and I said, go cure mental illness. And this was a sense of humor. He just, he says, well, we'll get a kind of almost cure it because you still have to go to college. We don't want to cure it completely. All right. You well, know? yes, that's, that's true. As somebody who's in the democracy reform business, although honestly, I, w- I would be glad to I would take do, it, yeah. do something else if work. we had a, 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 a yeah. functioning democracy. You know, Same go, here. I'll, I would... I'll go up in my piano bar and vegetarian restaurant. Yeah, I will. I will wait tables there for you as well. Same here, uh, gladly. But you know, the beauty of uh, democratic self-government is that there is never a moment when everybody is is happy. It's always uh, you know contested. There's always lots of stuff going on, and I think helping people to understand what's going on is vital, so that they can go out and try to succeed however they they want to. They can achieve their goals, whatever that may be. That's the whole essence, I think, of self-government. And you have written a pair of pieces, two pieces here um, recently, that help us to get a better understanding of these uh, of, of where we are right now. Before we kind of dive into the details, you've been writing a lot about this kind of overarching kind of idea of like what's wrong with, the, with American politics and how do we think about American politics in a way that ultimately gets us to a point where we can start figuring out what are the changes that we want to make to make it look a little bit better from our perspective, a little bit more productive for that matter? And one of them that jumped right out at me was you start off talking about super cooled water and metastability and uh, metast- metastability, not, not metastasizing, meta. See, I can't even read the words. Yeah, I know. It's funny because it, do- it does sound like metastability, but it's really, I think it's metastability. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's a concept from physics. I, I assume it's pronounce metastability. Well, I'm from South Georgia, so we pronounce like everything wrong, apparently. Like every, even in South Carolina, I'm told like that's not how you say it. So anyway, I'm going to go with what you said. That works for me. So yes, well, we just have to agree on how to pronounce things. There's no one right way to do things. But this is is a concept that I've become kind of obsessed with from physics, this idea of metastability that sometimes things exist in a state that is sort of beyond what you'd expect them to exist in, but it's a very fragile state. So one example of this is super cooled water, which is really a thing that I didn't know about, but under certain chemical or physical conditions, water can exist as a liquid at very low temperatures. However, when it gets slightly jostled, then it freezes all of a sudden. So it's kind of like between two states, like it's not quite a water, not quite a solid. And it's like this weird physics concept that I think really describes our politics quite well. Uh, Another way to think about it is terms of highway traffic is a way that this is often explained that I, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're like driving along the highway 
and it's it's like going 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 there's a lot of cars and then all of a sudden just like slows down to nothing has that ever happened to you it's definitely happened to me all the time yeah especially in dc Right. So th- there's this idea uh, that the highway is at capacity and it's just like one little thing, one little person breaking. And then there's this cascade effect uh, and there's this whole whole science of phantom jams and a study of jamology. Which you can look up on the Internet. So it's like politics is in this weird state where it feels like it can't go on like it's going on because there are all these tensions and contradictions within the parties, between the parties. And yet it keeps going on because it's in this like weird, super cooled or like excessive highway traffic still moving state. But at some point, it feels like things can't go on like this forever. And I think this concept is a way to help us understand that we're in this really fragile state where at some point we have to get to a new state. And I I don't know how or when that happens, but I think it will happen sometime in the reasonably near future. I don't know. What what do you think? Does this make sense to you? Or am I I just like getting too deep into, into weird concepts from physics that I might not entirely understand because I'm a political scientist and so we don't understand physics? I, I, I like it. And I said when I started on Capitol Hill back in what, like 2004 or so, that, you know, we had hit, I kept thinking we had hit rock bottom and it just kept going and going and going. So, you know, maybe, you know, we're still digging, I guess. I don't know. It's another way of looking at it. I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with the concept of physics applied to politics in general, but that's a more of a chemistry kind of person. But with that being said, I do think you're onto something here. And I want to, to just kind of push you on a couple of things though. And, and the first one is like, I just want to ask you a question about this. What is, what if this is the state? What if this is the point? It's not necessarily about equilibrium is another way of putting it, but disequilibrium. Because if we think about the things, the periods in the past when we have done the most, where the biggest things have happened for good or for bad, depending on your perspective. But the biggest, most marquee pieces of legislation, the the you know the boldest uh, presidential acts, the Supreme Court decisions, those types of things, even grassroots organizing and marches and the civil disobedience movements of the suffrage movement or the civil rights movement, we they're all periods of intense disequilibrium, and it's almost as if like the status quo is up for grabs. And when that happens, I mean, I think, you know, it, you, you get big things. And, and so I guess what if this is the state? And, and another way of putting that question is how does this compare to past periods of American uh, political history, like, say, the 60s, for instance, when I think things seemed like even worse? I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that was another period that was very much like this, that we were in this kind of metastable state. where We were kind of like between the old and the and the unknown. And I don't think politics should be equilibrium. I think you're right. It's at these moments of high tension in which things could go a lot of different ways. And that's what makes these periods and this idea of metastability kind of interesting is that it's it's this moment in which things go in a lot of different directions. So I, I think, I mean, I actually don't, don't think physics is a great model for politics either. This is more of a kind of complex systems physics idea. I, I think biological evolution is a, is a much better metaphor for politics and understanding politics, that, that it's a constant 
system of change, but there are these moments when it feels like things are kind of stuck. And what that really tells me is that there's a lot of pressure building up. And at some point, we are going to do something transformative because that's, you're right. You're absolutely right that that's what happens at these moments when it feels like things can't quite go on is something big winds up changing. Right. So that maybe it's the, the future's up for grabs. It reminds me of Kafka. And he has like a parable where, you know, the traveler is going down the, the road and the past is kind of pushing them forward and the future's pushing them back. And in the present, you know, you're, 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 it's that, that moment of tension between the two where you feel pressured and you just want to kind of get out of it. But, you know, in search for this period where it, things are this state where things are calmer, where things uh, where you don't have these pressures. But, you know, in reality, that's not the way it works. And can we can we go a little more Kafka? Because like the, the point I of think our well, listeners are asking us to do that, to be honest right. with you. Well, I, I mean, the point of like I think about the castle, right? He's he's he, ne- he never reaches the castle, right? Mm-hmm. The whole point of it is the journey. Which is what Paul, it's all about self-government. It's what I was saying earlier in past episodes and, and conversations and also before this, uh, we, we started recording. The outcome is like the, the icing on the cake, if you will. It's the act of self-government is the interactions with one another, the constant give and take. It's the activity. It's the process. We never get to the castle, right? I mean, this idea that politics is something that needs to be fixed or solved or achieve an equilibrium. Like politics is a living system. Right. In theory, I mean, it's kind of not looking very living right now. Certain places where it looks pretty bad. Yes. Well, that that's the problem is there's not enough dynamism in our politics. So what is what's the I don't want to say solution because that would then be violating my own rules. Yeah, there, there's no solution. There's no solution about solutions. No. Um, but what is the what are the possibilities here then? How about that? I mean, and you've also written on this as well. You know, we're in this moment. And I think all moments are like this, right? Because the future is never fully written. It's always up for grabs. And the interactions and the activities of people help make it possible. But with that being said, there's certain moments in time that like you've mentioned and like what you've written that that you know the pot, things are more possible than at other moments where the status quo, for instance, is a lot weaker than it could otherwise than it was at, an, at a previous point in time. And therefore, it's much uh, more likely to change. And so right now, like, what are the possibilities from here? Where, where are the different paths? Where do we go? If you want to kind of walk us through that kind of what you're thinking when you look out at the American electorate, for instance. Yeah, I, I, I don't know entirely, but I wrote another piece on my Substack, which is called Under Current Events, pieces entitled Our Politics is Only Flat on the Surface, which kind of for me, there is this fundamental tension that these two things are happening kind of at once. On on the surface, we see basically the same election results year after year, right? People are, are voting for Democrats or Republicans at roughly the same uh, rates year after year. Most of the states are either solidly red or solidly blue. Most of the districts are either solidly red or solidly blue. People's views on Trump are remarkably locked in. I don't know what could possibly happen that would change anybody's mind around Trump at this point. Or, you know, maybe there's a little bit of wiggle room on Biden, but like people have these fixed in views and every election is like fought on this tiny little middle ground that's i don't even know if it's in the middle anymore 
Uh, and we do all this analysis. Oh, you know, Democrats going to win, you know, this group of voters, Republicans are going to win that group of voters. It's like, uh, you know, but th- things are almost entirely all the same on the surface. Behaviorally, we are calcified, but attitudinally, people's views have been changing quite a bit on a lot of issues. And there are some real tensions within both of the parties. You know, you've often spoken about how the Republicans have tremendous disagreement within their ranks. The Democrats have tremendous disagreements in their ranks. It seems like the only thing that is holding these two coalitions together is that they are united in their opposition to each other. So there are a lot of issues where I think you would find tremendously interesting coalitions if you broke some of these parties into their constituent factions, immigration, economic policy, trade policy, foreign policy, environmental policy, attitudes towards technology, industrial policy. Right? I mean, all of these issues cut across the parties in interesting ways, but we're not having the debates over them because leaders in neither party want to have those debates, right? Yeah, I mean, well, that's why we have parties in, in particular is to keep the issues that they're divided on off the agenda and to keep the issues that they're united on on the agenda. And we often overlook that when we when we think about parties today and all the research that you know, says, oh, we have strong leaders when they're united. Which is why when, we're debating less and less in Congress. Right. You don't need party leaders when you all agree. I mean, flat out, period, end of story, full stop. You need party leaders when there's lots of disagreement. And, and, you know, Larry Evans in particular has done some great work on whips and whip activity on on this front and and looking at when the party whips in the House, at least, are more active and also the Senate are more active when they're dealing with issues that the party doesn't agree on. And so I think that kind of really demonstrates the this kind of nexus or this tie between kind of internal party divisions and then, you know, the centralization of the parties um, under their leaders. But I think the frustration I have, and I think I pick it up in what you've said in the past, our conversations, and also this what you've written here, is that most of the time it assumes that the only we assume that the only mechanism for change is a, is a shift in the balance of power between parties. And it, it frustrates us because we then see the kind of same thing keep happening. Although in 2016, I think there's a very dramatic shift in, in terms of like the blue wall, for instance, going for Republicans um, on that front. So I mean, elections can change. And I think in retrospect, they look, it's it's harder to get a sense of things in the moment. But, but I, I agree with the general sentiment that you've stated here, because I think my frustration is it overlooks our kind of conventional wisdom and this kind of fixation on this like this fictitious idea of uh, of polarization in terms of, I don't want to say fictitious because we are polarized, right? But this substantive, deep-seated polarization where there's a red America and a blue America, that overlooks the terrain within parties and how people struggled to shape those parties um, constantly. The issue, I mean, we're, we're polarized in terms of identity and feeling, but we're not so polarized in terms of policy. And I, I think your point, and this is an incredibly important point, is that you can have change in politics by the issue set changing and the coalitions within the parties changing and who has power within the parties changing. So even though we might feel like the electoral results are the same, more or less, election to election, what the parties are doing when they gain power 
is very different now or when or what they try to do when they think they have power is very different now than it was 10 years ago. Right. Well, and what is it to the is it how we look at politics and our expectations of politics today? Does that create and magnify this as well? So when you think of the presidency as the be all and end all, the emperor of America, if you will, that the president is going to be the person who ultimately makes us whatever we want to be, that is going to lead us into the promised land where there is no humidity and it never rains and everything is great, right? Then all of a sudden, it becomes very um, concerning in the way that our system is set up. Sounds, sounds like know. we're being led into the desert, James. <laughs> um, but or but if we have this different sense of our politics, where you know we're voting for our representatives and they are very different, and they go to places like Congress and they argue and they debate with one another, and the outcome of all of that, the the result is some sort of compromise that ultimately is implemented by the president. Um, but when you try to take this fabulously diverse and nuanced nation of ours and, and try to express it in, the, in terms of one office, I think, are we not setting ourselves up for failure and frustration? Sounds like we made a mistake in electing a president separately from Congress. We should have followed James Madison and had a parliamentary system in which the legislature appoints the president as the mere executive. Or maybe we just think about it the way we thought about it for a long time. Look, the late 19th century, you had been turnouts at its highest. People are the most frustrated as they possibly can be with their parties. Giant party machines, right? Uh, right. Yeah, it's, and, all, it's all patronage politics. Right. But my point is, though, that you have these two parties and the frustration is all time high. People think that the two parties represent nothing, that they're basically interchangeable, that they're just that it's the animosity between the two. Like, well, look at those other guys. They're bad. We're not. That's the only thing that keeps them going. And then what happens out of that? Yes, you have the progressive era and the efforts to kind of clamp down on the party machines, which ultimately reduces turnout as well, incidentally. But setting that aside. You have coming out of the late 19th century, a period where you have, and you mentioned four party politics, you have a lot of different kind of forces within the parties kind of bubble up and in response to this. And I think, you know, if we think about why this keeps happening and why, and why it's going to continue to happen, I think we have to look in the mirror because it seems to me that both at the beginning of the 20th century or in the 1960s and 70s, for instance, when the parties weren't ultimately doing what we wanted them to do, when our representatives weren't doing what they wanted, what we wanted them to do, the people ultimately took it upon themselves. Look, these arguments were there. These same arguments of, well, if you do that, then you're only going to help the other guys. They've, all, they've been making those arguments going back to the ratification debates and the constitutional amendments and whether or not we should have them. But they were not as successful then as they are now. And I think the difference is that today there's a shift in how we all, all of us, everybody going down to like just whoever votes understands politics. And they're not this, they're not, they don't take to the streets anymore. There's no sense of possibility. There's no sense of recreating the future, right? I mean, politics is hard. And just look at all the grassroots work that was done in the 60s from conservatives to progressives and everybody in between. But I don't think we have that anymore. Well, but I think we're seeing some of the signs of it starting up again. And, you know, I, I think there is this kind of roughly 60 year cycle in American politics. You talk about the 1960s, you talk about the early you know, the progressive era around 1900, you see a similar energy in the 1830s. 
in the this sort of populist Jacksonian revolt against the the Washington elites. And of course, you see the same energy in the Revolutionary War. That's like, you know, roughly 60 years. And I get this idea from Sam Huntington's book, American Politics, The Promise of Disharmony, which is a, a, a wonderful book uh, that we should discuss in our politics in question book club sometime which not not done uh yet but we could uh but right i mean it's this idea that that there is this promise this idea of american democracy that we never live up to and in various moments at roughly 60 year intervals the frustration with our political system not delivering on these ideals burbles up and and forces a, a kind of reckoning in our politics. And that's when these big, big transformative political and policy changes happen. And I, I, I really do think that all of the signs point to us approaching another one of these moments of, of really big transformation, because although what we're seeing can happen and can sort of sustain itself in this metastable state for a while, it can't forever. And, and at some point soon, I think we really will have a kind of political explosion. And I, I don't know where things will go. Uh, it could go in a lot of different directions. But I feel like I sort of frisson as I watch the chaos in, in Congress and the Republicans can't agree amongst themselves and Democrats can't agree amongst themselves. And yet they manage to vote in lockstep, something has to to give there. Right. Well, I think the activists who have been, you know, you know, out there working aggressively for those, you know, for the change that ultimately occurs in those moments of those sixty-year intervals, they would probably say it's always, you know, it's always there. And I'm, I know that's not what you were saying, but they're out there pushing against the status quo constantly, and it, and it takes time to kind of gather strength and, and steam. And then you get these moments where it all kind of comes together. And for those of us on the outside, it certainly, and also in retrospect, it may look like um, these kind of moments. But yeah, I love this book club idea. After we get our knitting club off the ground, we then for Julio, I think we should definitely um, get in on the book club. That'd be a good idea. But I want to, but I think what you're saying, I mean, I, I mean, Noah has a book club. I get this email. There is a Noah book club. I don't know how I got it. And it's like, we're re- this week, this is what we're reading. And it's like, what? It's fascinating. Um, but on the note, on the point you just made, though, I think it's the difference, though, with where we are today is that the things that we need to do to have change are the very things that we say are the problem. And I think this is best. This is evident in, the, in, a, in a generalized reaction to Mitt Romney's announcement that he is retiring in his uh, departure. Uh, from the Senate and people are wringing their hands and it's like, oh, we need more Mitt Romneys. And and I have nothing against Mitt Romney at all. I'm sure he's a very nice man. And But he, as a senator, did not do, so far as I can tell, anything to, to push the institution, to force the institution to change, to, to be a skunk at the garden party, which is ultimately what you have to do if you want to affect institutional change from the inside. He didn't do any of that stuff. And it seems to me that if Mitt Romney sticks around and we had a lot more Mitt Romneys, it would be a continuation of the status quo. It's the people who force change are the progressive warriors, are the conservative warriors, are the maverick centrists like, you know, like a John McCain. People, it's an attitude and it's a relationship to the status quo and then an attitude on how you're going to try to 
change the status quo. It's not like you're tinkering at the margins and yeah, you shouldn't be a schmuck and I'm not, it's not what I'm suggesting. Um, but I, I think we, we need more aggressive uh, radicals for that matter. If you think about the Freedom Caucus, but think about the Freedom Caucus, they were, the Freedom Caucus was created precisely to defeat rules in the House so that they could then push the House uh, Republican Party to, to change its policies on certain things. And, and, and it was a way to get leverage internally within that. And it seems to me that that kind of exercise, the, the liberals and the Democratic study group in the House in the, in the mid 20th century, we have the conservatives and the Senate steering committee, those kinds of uh, people, those kinds of members, those are the ones, and then they're kind of allied groups on the outside. They're the ones that ultimately shift the status quo. The, the, the Susan Collinses of the world, and again, nothing against Susan Collins, she doesn't change the status quo. She's not going to change the status quo. Mitt Romney's not going to change the status quo. And, and, that's, and if the status quo is something that we all agree, and I think conservatives and progressives and everybody in between generally is unhappy with the status quo, it seems odd to me that we then say, these are the kinds of people, these are the kinds of character traits, and these are the kinds of behaviors that we need to see more of to get out of this moment. When in reality, I think that's the exact opposite. Right. Uh, you know, I, th I think there there is this idea that we have to go back to restore things the way they used to be, which seems to be a, a very counterproductive approach when we need to push into the future and, and create new types of politics and new coalitions. And so maybe it's time for senators to wear shorts james let's let's end on this Look, note. you know the, the senate dress code is i've got a love-hate relationship with it after working there for so long but if if senators will show up and be senators wearing flip-flops and offer amendments and debate and argue into the night then i say let them wear flip-flops let them wear like cowboy hats and stuff whatever they want to wear maybe things will be a little less stuffy right you know yeah but I, but on that note, i do think that it is the dress code in and of itself isn't a problem. The problem is that the senators and the most people in general no longer see the Senate as a place of importance. They no longer see the Senate floor as some place where important things happen. It's like an afterthought. It's where we go to kind of rubber stamp the deals that we've cut elsewhere. It's the last hurdle in this process that we have to get over. It's not a venue. It's not a place where possibilities exist. And it's been like that for about two decades now. And it's been genuinely declining. And I think that this latest thing in the, the, on, on the dress code is just evidence of that as well. I, look, I'm not opposed to changes in the dress code, uh, and it's an informal dress code. But ultimately, I think it's a sign. It's a sign that just the Senate itself is, is, a, is a pale imitation of what it once was. And if you don't use institutions for what they're created for, they're dead for all intents and purposes. And that's we're not using the Senate for what it was created for by any means. And I think that this is a worrisome, yet another worrisome uh, piece of evidence to that fact right now. Well, let, let's wear flip-flops on our feet and then we can flip-flop in our minds to... You're taking me to 2004, the, you know, the flip-flops in the convention. Oh, yeah. We should probably end on that, but uh, we'll talk more about some flip-flops later. Well, this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.